Thank you, Eric, and thank you, worship band, this morning. That was particularly awesome worship for me this morning. I really enjoyed that set. How's Fellowship Franklin doing today? You guys doing well? Good to see you on this Sunday. Middle of summer, heat's gonna come out again, so it's nice to have a little bit of a break from that with uh, the drizzle this morning. Well, welcome back uh, to Fellowship. Uh, if we didn't cross paths last week, quick intro. My name is Mike. And I am gonna be taking us through a five-week series on apologetics. This is week number two of that series. Um, and during this time, uh, we're church, normal church is gonna feel slightly like Sunday school. Um, the goal of this time is to better equip you to be able to answer some of the objections that come up when people ask us, to explain our faith to them or to propound our faith to them. Um, the goal of apologetics, as we learned last week, uh, when we looked at the verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15, uh, the goal of apologetics is to prepare us to be ready to be able to give an answer to anyone who asks us for, to give the reason for the hope that we have. That hope is Jesus Christ. Purpose of this five weeks is to better equip you to give a ready defense for the Christian faith. Now, if you missed last week, uh, what we learned last week was that the Bible in your hands ha has successfully survived the passage of time. Uh, we looked specifically at the New Testament and we discovered that this book here, the New Testament, is a trustworthy translation directly from the original Greek into English, and this is a very trustworthy uh, replication or duplication of that document. It has successfully survived the passage of time. It did not get handed down to us over the previous 2,000 years like a game such as telephone. It is a direct translation from the original Greek. What does that mean that we've established thus far? It means we have an accurate reproduction. But some critics will say, so what? I have an accurate reproduction of Shakespeare on my shelf at home. Who cares? Well, we're gonna move forward today in our ready defense and our question on the table for today is, has God spoken? Is this book from God or is this book from man? Some well-intended Christians, when presented with that question, is this book from God or is this book from man? What they will do is they'll go ahead and they'll quote the Bible to their questioner. They'll say, well, yeah, the Bible is from God. Well, why do you say that? Well, let's take a look at 2 Timothy 3.16. And it says right here, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. See, it's right there. It says it's from God. Well, I would suggest to you that that might be well-intended, but it falls short of the mark of effectiveness. Why do I say that? It's, it's sort of circular reasoning. Well, why is the Bible special? Well, because the Bible's special. Well, why do you think the, God wrote the Bible? Well, it says right here that God wrote the Bible. It sort of assumes the premise that you've been asked to defend. And so it's slightly less than intellectually compelling to an honest seeker or questioner who truly wants to get to the answer of the question, why do you think God wrote this book? And while I, it's true that God is the author of scripture, and I believe that earnestly, and yes, the New Testament says that, the Old Testament says that as well, that's not the answer the questioner's looking for when they lay that question at your feet. So that, that type of reasoning falls short on two fronts. Number one, it's circular reasoning, right? It assumes the premise you've been asked to defend. You've been asked to defend. But secondly, that line of reasoning falls short um, because other holy books exist that also in one way or another claim divine inspiration. If you were to ask any Muslim about the Quran, they would tell you that the Quran is divinely inspired. 
It's supposedly a word-for-word -word exchange from an angel uh, to the man Muhammad, the angel Gabriel, supposedly, to the man Muhammad. It's, con it's considered by uh, Muslims to be divinely inspired. If you look at the Book of Mormon, the subtext beneath where it says Book of Mormon, it says another testament of Jesus Christ. The Hindu Vedas supposedly are divinely inspired. So Christianity is not unique in that we claim to have a book that is divinely inspired. We're kind of one of many on that playing field. And so to the questioner, is the Bible divine? Does it actually come from God? Well, we can't just say it, it claims to be because other books claim to be too. And now we sort of have a jump ball. So why do we think we're right when we say that the Bible came from God? And so I want us to wrestle with this this morning. This is the direction we're going today. Why do we think the Bible came from God? Why do we think God is the author of this book? The question I wanna lay at your feet <clears throat> as we get into this today is this. If God wrote a book, how would we know? What would it look like if God wrote a book? Now, I would, I would suggest that we may not know exactly what it would look like if God wrote a book, but I think we can all agree that that book should be different from just about any other book out there, at least in some ways. It shouldn't look and feel and, 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 and get a sense of how every other book or many other books uh, out there look and feel and so forth. It should in some way be distinctive. Can we at least agree on that? So, what I wanna to go to in my uh, time that I've got with you this morning, we're gonna have about 35 or 45 minutes together. We're gonna to look at some of the ways that the Bible is different from every other book ever written. That's how I've chosen to answer the question, how do we know if God wrote this book? We're looking for something that might be distinctive about the Bible. Now, there's, in all, there's about seven different ways that the Bible is unique from all other literature. We've got time to look at about four different ways this morning. So let's just go ahead and dive in. I will tell you that some of these ways we're gonna look at this morning will probably feel nothing more than interesting to you. But to me, others of them are absolutely compelling. So let's jump into it. The first way that the Bible is unique, and I'm not sure if, if Eric mentioned this or not, as uh, was the case last week, you've got a handout. If you look at the seat pack, uh, the back of the seat in front of you, uh, you should have a handout that's like on cardboard stock. There'll be places this week, again, as last week, where you can kind of fill in the blank to keep up with some of the, uh, the notes that we're going through today. All right, the first way that the Bible is unique, the Bible is unique in its survival. And you might say, okay, Mike, we learned about that last week. Why are we going through this again? Well, last week, guys, we learned that there's more manuscript copies uh, that have survived of the New Testament, uh, more so than any other work from antiquity. We learned that the surviving manuscripts have a closer date gap to their originals than any other work from antiquity as well. And you might be saying, great, what's unique about that? I mean, after all, Homer survived antiquity and Plato survived antiquity. So did Eusebius and Tacitus and so forth. Yes, they all did. But what makes the Bible unique in its survival is what it had to go through to survive to this time. Now, you need to realize that over the course of the ages, no book has been more loved than the Bible. And I would also argue that no book has been more hated than the Bible. From about the time of AD 64, uh, that was the time that a Roman emperor named Nero rose to power. From AD 64 until about 311 AD. In 311, a guy named Constantine rose to power and he sort of changed things. But there was a 250 year period where Christianity was heavily persecuted. 
And numerous Roman emperors put forth edicts of persecution that had several things in common. These Roman emperors decreed that there was to be destruction of all the Christian churches, the rounding up and killing of Christians, and the burning of all New Testament writings. Now, you need to understand, not only was there an enormous loss of life during this time, but there was also a significant destruction of our text. The New Testament kept on getting rounded up and destroyed, rounded up and destroyed, rounded up and destroyed. Why were they being persecuted? The Christians had this finicky preference that really offended Rome. They only would worship Jesus. The Romans were a very polytheistic society. You're allowed to worship any of the gods you wanted to, but all Romans were required to worship Caesar, the Roman emperor, as God himself on this earth. You know what's interesting? Christians refused to do that. And so as a result of that, it was considered that Christians were violating the covenant that Rome had with her gods. And so they fell under heavy persecution from the time of Nero until the time of Constantine. Now, you gotta understand, for the church, this was a horrible time to be alive, a horrible time to be alive. There's a lot of different artists that have put kind of pen to paper to depict what this timeline looked like. This is a snippet from one of the paintings called The Christian Martyr's Final Prayer. And what you see is there's a whole round of Christians that are in the floor of the uh, Roman Colosseum, and it might not be very clear. I'm gonna put up a bigger version of this picture in just a second, uh, but there's a number of people that have been nailed to crosses around the periphery of the Roman Colosseum, and those crosses have been set aflame. Now, if you don't uh, like graphic images, then don't look at this next one. It's not gory, it's not bloody, but it suggests what's coming. Uh, these Christians on the floor of the arena are about to be introduced to um, some predatory animals, lions and tigers and so forth, and you can better see some of the crosses set aflame on the interior of the arena. Guys, this was the early church. This is the era that Christians went through for about a 250-year time period. Uh, can I just say evangelism would have been a touch tricky during this time, right? Come be a Christian. If you're lucky, they'll kill you quickly kind of a tough new members class, right? But this was our reality. And what's interesting during this timeline, guys, is that all Christians had to do to survive. All you have to do, hand over your writings and recant your faith. In fact, you could even worship Jesus if you want to, but you have to worship Caesar as well. Many Christians, I shouldn't say many, some Christians did denounce their faith. Some of them did agree to worship Caesar, but most did not. Most chose this path. And during this time, hundreds, if not thousands of our New Testament writings were destroyed. But as you know, many survived. In fact, so many survived that it's still, despite this persecution, the greatest attested document we have from antiquity. Now, the early church is not the only timeline that the Bible was under persecution. This happened numerous times over the ages. During the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, there were prohibitions against reading the Bible. For those of you who have studied kind of the timeline pre-Reformation, you know that the Bible in Europe could only exist in Latin and only a small handful of people could read Latin. The learned people and the, the heads of the Roman Catholic Church, you were not allowed to translate the Bible into a language you understood because the Roman Catholics at that time were using their power. So there's prohibitions against reading it, prohibitions against translating it. Up until even modern times, there's been denials against its authority. During the time of the Enlightenment, a lot of people were vociferously arguing against it and its credibility. You've probably heard the name Voltaire before. He was a French philosopher that lived during the 1700s. Voltaire was kind of an interesting guy. 
He argued very heavily against Christianity and against the validity of the Bible. And he said this, he said, in less than 100 years, Christianity will be swept from existence. You know, it's interesting, Voltaire died and 50 years after he died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and began printing Bibles on Voltaire's own printing press. I love the irony in that. You think God has a sense of humor? Yeah, you bet. There's a quote in your handout that I love. It's by a, um, a historian named Bernard Ram. He says this, a thousand times the death knell of the Bible has sounded. The funeral session procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. Isn't that fascinating? There is a, a French king uh, from many hundreds of years ago as well, a guy named, um, what was his name? I can't remember. Oh, King Navarre. And he had an advisor named Theodore Beza. And Navarre was talking about uh, trying to round up all the Bibles and all the members of the Church of God to destroy them. And his advisor, Theodore Beza, says this. This is actually on the historical record. He said, sire, the Church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Isn't that interesting? You can't destroy the Bible. You can't destroy the word of God. Why? Because God has chosen to preserve his word. What would be one thing that would be unique about the Bible? If God wrote a book, you better believe he'd make it stand. He'd make it stand. And guys, you need to know, why is this unique? No one has tried to rid the earth of Plato. No one has tried to wipe out Homer. No one has. And we see how much manuscript evidence they have. We have so much more despite all this persecution. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. I wrote a note from that uh, worship song earlier today uh, about the word. It says, the light has shined into the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. My friends, the Bible is truly unique in its survival. That's the first point today. Number two, the Bible is unique in unity. For those of you who like Bible trivia, let me throw a few things on the screen for you. Some of you may know this, but I'm sure some of you do not. The Bible took about 1,500 years to compose. Moses was the first entry into the canon. He wrote around 1400 BC. Moses authored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. John closed the canon around 90 or 95 AD when he wrote his writings in exile from the island of Patmos. So you have about a 1500 year timeline. The Bible is a collection of 66 books that were written or composed by 40, sorry, by 40 different authors. Now these authors vary incredibly in terms of their background, in terms of their geographic location, in terms of their occupation, uh, in terms of their education levels and so forth. Let's think for a second about some of the diversity we see in the biblical authors, okay? We see guys who are kings, like David and like Solomon, contributing to the Bible. Kings, the highest ranking official in the land. We have kings that contributed to the Bible. But you also have shepherds like Amos. You have fishermen like Peter and John, the lowest of the blue collar, are also contributors to the canon of scripture. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Joshua was a military general. Daniel was a prime minister. Paul was a rabbi. Who was Luke? What was his occupation? He was a doctor. He was a physician. He was also a historian. What was Matthew's occupation? 
Yeah, he was with the, uh, the Roman IRS, basically, right? But you've got all this diversity. The Bible is written in three different languages from three different continents all over the place. Guys, and even though the Bible was composed by many different people from diverse backgrounds, widely varying education levels and so forth, Scripture speaks from one mind. It is remarkably, you might say, uniquely unified amidst its tremendous diversity. Now, with all this, what you find is that from paradise lost in Genesis all the way through until paradise regained in Revelation, there is a single unfolding central story in the Bible, and that is God's redemptive plan for mankind. That is the entire story of the Bible. And there's also one central character in Scripture, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, Mike. Now you're trying to pull a fast one here. I've read that book, and this Jesus fella doesn't show up until you get to Matthew. That's 75% of the way through the book. How can you say that Jesus is the central character of the entire Bible? Well, he's anticipated in the Old Testament, and he's realized in the New Testament. Throughout the Bible, there's a whole bunch of predictions of Jesus coming. There's also a whole lot of foreshadowing of his coming. We'll look at that in just a little bit. But you need to realize that even Jesus himself says that he is found on almost every page of the Old Testament. When Jesus dies and is put in the tomb and then he's raised back to life, he's walking down a road with a couple of travelers and they stop and they have some conversation. And when they pause and take some food and talk a little bit, Jesus looks at the Old Testament with these people. And Luke 24, 27 says, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How much would you have paid to be a part of that Bible study? That would have been incredible. Now, when it says all the scriptures, oh, Mike, you mean the New Testament? No, I don't mean the New Testament. The New Testament hadn't been started yet. This is Jesus in his resurrected state before anything had been written about him. Jesus is going back to Moses and the prophets and the other writings of the Old Testament to point out where they find him in the Old Testament. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, there's a host of very specific promises of Jesus coming. There's also foreshadowing of the coming Christ in the Old Testament. Look, we're gonna look at some of the predictions in a bit, but let's examine some of the foreshadowing because this sometimes can be overlooked when you're not seeing it rightly. What's some examples of foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, let's look at Genesis. Jesus is foreshadowed in Abel who although innocent was slain and whose blood cries out. Jesus is foreshadowed in Isaac. Isaac who would carry his own wood to the place where he would willingly lay down his life to be sacrificed. Jesus is foreshadowed in Joseph. Have you ever taken the time to look at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament? It's written between roughly Genesis 36 to Genesis 50. When I was at Bible school in Sweden, I had to do a character study on someone from the Old Testament. I could pick anyone I wanted to. I chose Joseph because I, I liked the guy's story. When I sat down to look at the similarities between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ, I was baffled. Both of them were beloved by their father. Both of them were hated by their brothers. Both of them rose to public prominence at the age of 30. Both of them were falsely accused. Both of them had their robes forcibly taken from them. You might say, oh, that's interesting, Mike. So what? Well, 
it gets better. Both of them were betrayed for the price of a slave by a man named Judah. Isn't that interesting? You might say, whoa, whoa, Mike, it's, it's Judas in the New Testament, not Judah. Yeah, that's just a derivative. Like Steve and Stephen are basically the same name as well. Both were betrayed for the price of a slave by a man named Judah. Get this. Both of them were placed between two criminals, one who would be saved, the other who would be lost. Wow. Both of them would save their nation. Both of them would rise to power. Both of them would be, would be seated at the right hand of power. Both of them would use this power to not exact revenge on those who betrayed them, but to extend forgiveness to those who betrayed them. For both of them, it was said very clearly that what man did to harm them, God intended for good. There's about a dozen other similarities. I look at that and they say, wow. There are so many shadows of Jesus in the life of Christ. And guys, time won't prevent us from being exhaustive here. That's just three examples from three characters in the book of Genesis. There's 38 other books in the Old Testament. You need to realize that Jesus is all over the Old Testament. Such incredible unity can only be accounted for by the existence of a divine mind that inspired each of the writers of Scripture. And this mind wove all the individual pieces into one single mosaic of truth. They all contribute to one picture that very clearly and very definitely points towards Christ. That's point number two. The Bible is also unique in that it contains predictive prophecy. Now, prophecy is when God enables human messengers to foretell future events. God seems to use prophecy as an indicator light that it's him speaking, not the human messenger that's bringing forth his message. And Jesus actually even says so in, in bold letters in the book of John. He says, now I have told you before it comes to pass so that when it comes to pass, you may believe. Jesus says that when I am telling you something in advance of it happening, I'm suggesting to you that it is God himself that is speaking. Why? Because only God can do this. And scattered throughout the Bible are a multitude of extremely specific predictions about the coming Christ. Many of these, if not most of these, were recorded hundreds and hundreds of years in advance of their fulfillment. Now, I personally am of the belief that if you're an Old Testament author, and you're writing some of these things down, it would kind of weird you out a little bit because you in one sense would have no idea what you're saying, right? If I look at Isaiah chapter 44 and chapter 45 as an example, Isaiah predicts that um, the Babylonian exile would end with a return to Judah and, the, and a restoration of their ruins. And he also predicts that a man named Cyrus would rise to power who would authorize the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. Now, why is that weird? Well, when Isaiah writes, writes this uh, at the time of the prophecy, Judah is not in captivity. There is no Babylonian captivity at this time. It's business as usual in all throughout Israel. The city of Jerusalem is intact. The temple is still standing. And the man named Cyrus, who's gonna authorize the rebuilding of the temple, he won't be born for 150 years. But Isaiah's writing this stuff down going, okay, I'll write it down. It must have seemed weird to these guys at the time, don't you think? Now, 
regarding the anticipated of the promised Messiah of Israel. Let's talk about some of these predictions, some of these promises. Someone in the audience, give me an example of one of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Name one. That he'd be born in Bethlehem. Yep, that's a great one. What's another one? What's, what's another example? Besides born in Bethlehem, what's another prophecy? Born of a virgin. Yes, ma'am. What's another one? That he would be, that he would, yeah, that he would perform miracles, that he would heal those who are sick. Great. Yep. Anything else? That he would be betrayed. Yep. Very good. That he would die and rise again. Yep. That he would rise back to life after death. Yeah, there's a whole host of these. Let me, I'll just read a handful of these. It was prophesied that he would be from the line of Isaac. It was prophesied that he'd be a, a, from the tribe of Judah, that he'd be a direct descendant from David. It was prophesied that he would minister in Galilee. It was prophesied, as was said, that he'd be born of a virgin. Uh, it was prophesied that he would have a forerunner, that there'd be someone who would go before him announcing his coming. It was prophesied in Zechariah that he would enter into Jerusalem as a king on a donkey that he'd be rejected by his own people. It was prophesied that he would be rejected for 30 pieces of silver. It was prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that none of his bones would be broken. That one's interesting because on the cross, his two neighbors had broken bones. He didn't. It was prophesied that he'd be assigned a grave with a rich man. Interesting. And guys, do you know how many prophecies there are of the Messiah of Israel in the Old Testament? I think this is a fill in the blank on your notes. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Over 300. There's about 70 major ones, but there's over 300 total prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Now, pertaining to the fulfillment of these prophecies, I've heard some naysayers, and I actually got to concede the point on this one. Some of them said, yeah, but he could control some of those things. I'm not really impressed by the fact that Jesus, for example, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey because he could have chosen to do that. Yeah, I'll give you that. He would also say, and Jesus probably also knew that in Roman-controlled Palestine, that if he got into enough hot water, he was probably going to get crucified. Yeah, I, I could even concede that point. But could Jesus control that he would be born of a virgin? Could Jesus control who his family line would be? Could Jesus control that people would gamble for his garments while he was on the cross? Could Jesus control whether or not they would choose to break his legs while on the cross or not? Absolutely not. Guys, there are, these are incredible, very precise predictions about the Messiah. Very interesting. Now, there is a professor at University of Chicago, a man named Peter Stoner, and he was a professor of science and mathematics. And he decided he was gonna put his graduate class to the test on this. And he said, okay, let's figure out what the odds are of eight prophecies becoming fulfilled in the same one person. Now, to calculate the odds on this, we need to agree on some math, okay? Let's just say, for example, just so we can kind of get on the same page for how this calculation is done. Let's assume that one out of every 10 men is bald, and I don't know if I look out in the room if that would be a fairly safe prediction, but let's just assume statistically one out of every 10 men is bald, okay? Let's assume one out of, one, out of every 100 men is missing a finger, okay? One out of every 100 men is missing a finger. Here's the question for you. What are the mathematical chances of coming across a bald man who is also missing a finger? What are the odds? One out of what? 
one out of a thousand, because you've got to multiply your entities. You take the chances of one out of 10 and you multiply it by the chances of one out of a hundred. That gives you the odds of one out of a thousand are your chances of coming across a, a man who is bald and missing a finger at the same time. Now, to his graduate class, University of Chicago, Peter Stoner says this, we're gonna take eight messianic prophecies and we're gonna calculate the conservative odds of these eight things coming true. Now, Peter Stoner's summary of this is a five-page single-line document. I'm gonna put that on the website so you can read the whole thing and it'll be located at the same place where you can click on a recording of this sermon because I won't have a chance to do all five pages justice. But here's what Peter Stoner figured out when he posed the odds, or how do we calculate this, to his graduate students. He figured out that the odds of all eight of these prophecies coming true in the same one man are roughly one in 100 quadrillion. You might say, what on earth does that mean? Well, on your handout, if you wanna write it down, that's the number 100, comma, put 15 zeros after that. 15 zeros. One chance out of 100 quadrillion are the odds of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in the same one person. Now, how do we relate to a 100 quadrillion? Let's give this some perspective. When I was a kid, I used to collect silver dollars. I thought these things were awesome. When I first found these, I thought they were the coolest coin ever. And so I collected silver dollars when I was a child. And I still have a whole box full of these from my time growing up. If you were to collect 100 quadrillion silver dollars, what you'd have to do is you'd have to stack these babies vertically two feet tall. And how much surface area would we have to cover in silver dollars stacked two feet tall up to the height of my knee to be able to feel like we've come up with 100 quadrillion silver dollars? Would this room be sufficient for 100 quadrillion silver dollars? No. How about the entire Franklin campus? Not enough? All right. How about Franklin, Tennessee? Nope. Williamson County? Nope. Guys, you'd have to cover the entire state of Texas a landmass of 269,000 square miles of silver dollars two foot deep. And the odds of finding the one silver dollar, the odds of finding that one silver dollar that's got a marking on it that differentiates it from every other silver dollar in the mass, this is gonna be face down somewhere in that landmass and you have to get in a helicopter, fly anywhere you want to in Texas. You can go to Durango, you can go to Austin, you can go to Corpus Christi, El Paso, pick your favorite spot to go, but you're gonna fly anywhere at your choice, blindfolded, you have to reach down only once and grab the right silver dollar. That's the odds of you getting it right that the same eight prophecies would be fulfilled in one man. You guys, you need to realize there is no, I've got chills talking about this. There is no other holy book that exists that contains predictive prophecy. Why? Because it's impossible. It is utterly impossible. What are the odds of you winning the lottery? There's a chance of that. Yeah, one in 269 million. We haven't even reached a rounding error in the calculation to come up with this calculation. Not even close. Guys, not the Quran, not the Hindu Vedas, not the Book of Mormon. Nowhere in other holy or religious literature can you find predictive, can you find predictive prophecy because it is only attainable by God. 
This is truly the signature of the Almighty in your text. It's incredible. I will leave you with one last way that the Bible is unique from all other holy books, and we'll end on this. The Bible is unique in grace. Now, this, this argument may not resonate with the critic or with the skeptic, but I gotta tell you that it resonates with me. You see, I learned in seminary that literally every major religion in the world has three things in common. Regardless of the world religion, they all have three things that they share in common. Number one, and these are in your fill in the blanks, every major world religion believes in some divine essence, some conception of God. Now, some religions are what we would call pantheistic. They believe that God is in everything and that God is everything. That's pantheist. Some religions are uh, polytheistic. They believe that there are many gods. Some are strongly monotheistic. Some are dualistic. They all have slightly different conceptions, but every major world religion believes in that there is some divine essence. The second thing that all religions have in common is that they all believe that there is a moral law. All religions believe in the existence of a moral law. A mor the moral law is the standard of conduct that we are all conscious of. And as is often the case, I think C.S. Lewis says it best. He says in Mere Christianity, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and they cannot really get rid of it. Something appears in me as law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong, right? So Lewis says, we are all aware of this sense that we're supposed to behave a certain way. But what's interesting about the moral law is that all world religions are also agreed that we have violated this thing. We have broken the moral law. And Lewis again goes on to say this, I'm only trying to call attention to the fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. All cultures agree in prescribing behavior which their adherents fail to practice. All men stand under condemnation and this condemnation does not come from alien code of ethics. This hasn't been pushed upon us or passed to us, but by their own and all men therefore are conscious of guilt. So what do we know so far? We know that um, there is an existence of a divine essence. We know that all world religions also agree that there is a moral law. Point number three is this. Somehow the first two points are linked. There is some relationship between the divine essence and the moral law. Some religions think that the divine essence is the author or the originator of the moral law. Some religions think that he's merely the custodian or the keeper of the moral law, but they all agree that they are somehow connected and that when we offend the moral law, uh, sorry, that when we break the moral law, we have somehow offended the divine essence. All religions agree on those three points, including us, right? Including us. Our Bible says you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59.2 says, your sins have separated you from your God. We agree on this. But if a fourth point were made, you would see that Christianity now starts to distinguish itself and the teaching of the Bible would start to separate from the pack. You see, if a fourth point were made, it says that most religions would say that the only way man that can fix his precarious position is by now engaging in some type of new moral behaviors. There's something that you have to do in other world religions, D-O, to find your way back to favor with God. You must engage in this, you must do this, you try to do this, you have to do this. 
You have to do something in every world religion to try to find a way to right the, the scales. Christianity is different. The teaching of the Bible in this regard is different. Because the Bible says, and worship band, you guys can come up now. We're getting ready to wrap up. The Bible's teaching is different in this regard. And that the Bible says very clearly that there's nothing you can do to be able to make yourselves right with the holy God. All that we need to do within Christianity according to the teaching of the Bible is that we need to trust and accept that which has been done for us. Every world religion except for Christianity, except for the teaching of the Bible says you must do something and we say, nope, all you have to do, my friends, in trust in that which has been done. Christ has accomplished salvation for you. All you need to trust, all you need to do is trust him. Put your faith in him. The New Testament says in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verses eight and nine, it says, so you have been saved, or for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. Amen? Quick summary, what have we learned today? The Bible is unique in its survival, the Bible is unique in its unity. The Bible is unique in its predictive prophecy. And the Bible is unique in grace. My friends, for those who are interested, I'll put a copy of the teaching notes. I'll put a copy of the PowerPoint. I'll put a copy of Peter Stoner's uh, transcript on the website as well for you guys to have as a reference. Just so you know, from here, the plan was that we were gonna go forward and try to continue on our case for the New Testament. Right, you might say, okay, well, it looks like all these prophecies from the Old Testament were fulfilled in the New Testament. Well, what if those New Testament authors simply rewrote history to make it look like Jesus said and did all those things? How do we know we can trust the New Testament authors as reliable historians? That was gonna be the focus for next week. But I've had to change up the order a little bit. That was gonna be week three. Week three now, I've been able to secure a guest speaker, which you guys are gonna be very excited about. And I'm not gonna tell you who it is. You're just gonna have to come back next week. But I will tell you that you will remember next week's message for years to come. The focus of next week's um, session is gonna be how to have conversations that count.